Okay, today is Tuesday, October the 25th, 2011. And we'll prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, the option of rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and that you change not, nor does your word. We're so thankful that we have the solid rock that is inerrant and is alive and powerful. We pray that you will help us to focus as we learn from your word this evening, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to do something a little different tonight. Um, We've had this would be our fifth lesson in getting the gospel right, and usually I'll go through a series, and at the end I'll do a review with an outline and try to bring us up to speed. I decided not to wait to the end, and we're going to go over a brief outline of what we've had so far. I think this might be easier because while it's still fresher on our minds, and it will imprint again the things we went over. It's just a very brief one, and then we'll continue, but uh, I might do this again later on after we have about maybe five more lessons in this is continue with the uh, review. So, um, there it is. I'll put this on the board. Now, this is not on 24 font, but I hope that uh, you can see it. Um, Even if you don't see it, you can hear it. We'll make this available to anybody that wants to have it. It's not in our regular notes. But uh, we started the series, uh, Getting the Gospel Right, and this is a review outline. Uh, Point number one, we made the the point that all mankind has a fatal sin problem. And we know that, but there's a lot of people that do not. But the Bible says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I was thinking about this on the way here. I was thinking about how many people who want to know the truth. They'd like to know what happens after they die, if anything. For some people, they believe it's just like turn off a switch and that's the end. Um, and they, But they're interested, a lot of them, and they don't know where to go. Sometimes they put their faith in getting it right as to what happens after this veil of tears by choosing someone that has a lot of credentials. Surely if a person goes through... Uh, college and seminary and gets a master's degree and then a Ph.D., surely that person must know uh, how to be saved and what's going to happen after physical death. You would assume that. But once you start digging into what they say and what they believe, comparing it to the Bible, you'll find that there are many, I won't go as far to say most, but it might be most, of them who are very credentialed are not even saved. They don't even know what the gospel is. So that's not a, an, an accurate uh, source to get truth. And then a lot of them will go to mega churches where you have thousands of people going to this church and they feel comfortable there. For one thing, they won't be noticed. If they're not there, people won't miss them. Uh, even in mega churches, people scurry to the back row. But they feel comfortable there because they think, well, if all these people are here, uh, they must be right. Everybody can't be wrong about what is being taught here. And of course, that's not an accurate source either. The last place people look is, you know, where? And that is the Bible itself. When I was praying tonight, I was thinking about truly how thankful I am for God's Word and that it changes not. Everything else changes. And you have fads and you have things that come and go. But the Word of God stands and abides forever. And I am so thankful for that. And it's not just for the gospel, but in everything in life, that is our canon, our measuring rod. And it's unfortunate that so many people don't look to the Bible. They look to all the other things. Even some people are more superficial if a person, especially if a guy is handsome, he's articulate, he's well-spoken, well-read, and 
maybe has a sense of humor, sometimes even if he has an accent. It could be a southern drawl or it could be someone from uh, England. People go to churches to listen to these people just because they are infatuated with these type of things. But if we're going to find out what is going to save us from an eternal hell, we better make sure that we're going to the right source. So what does the source say? Point number two, Job chapter 9, verse 10. How can a man be in the right before God? Question of questions are, later on, it's given in Acts 16, 30. should be Acts 16, 31. I don't know why. <laughs> Did y'all catch that? Huh? Okay, Acts 16, 31. What must I do to be saved? That is the number one $64,000 question. You don't have that anymore. Besides today, it wouldn't be 64,000. It would probably be about 10 gazillion before people would even be interested. But that's the question that people would like to know the answer to. Point number three, the average Christian isn't exactly sure how to tell someone to be saved. So most of them, they don't even try. And that's a tragedy. It's being disobedient to the Word. But they're missing out on the spice of life. If you've ever witnessed to someone and they've got it, they accepted the gospel and they start getting on track, it's one of the most marvelous experiences you'll have. That's right. I said experience. Nothing wrong with an experience. But we're not here for an experience. But if you've missed that one, you've missed a good one. It is tremendous. And people don't give the gospel for various reasons. We'll get into that. But first of all, what we did was analyze how bad is this problem? And we have a few sub-points here. A, this is a quote, and I'm not giving the source of the quotes. You can go to the notes for that. Most people know neither God nor His Word. They have religion, but not Christ. And there's a difference. Multitudes baptized into Christianity as infants do not personally know Him who to know is eternal life, according to John 17.3 and 1 John 5.20. Loyalty to denomination substitute for Christ. You have a lot of people that are very sensitive when it comes to any disagreement with their denominational beliefs. What their denominational beliefs are, for the most part, is a mystery to them. All they know is, I'm a Baptist, I'm a Methodist, I'm a Lutheran, I'm a Presbyterian, I'm an Episcopalian, I'm this or I'm that. And they feel good about that. They be, they're able to be identified with another group and that gives them a sense of security. So that's the case. We're looking at how bad the problem is. We have a lot more people that are more interested in identifying with a denomination, with a group of people, than they are getting to know Christ through the Bible. Pluralism. I want you to remember this word. I want you to know what it is because it's brought up from time to time, very often in uh, church theological realms and so forth. Pluralism is the view that all religions have the same moral value and offer the same potential for achieving salvation, however salvation may be construed. Now, you're going to see this presented throughout your Christian life, and now you can put a name to it. It's the idea that we're all going to the same place. We're just getting there by different methods, which is balderdash. And it's to, it is to try to make Christianity on a par with, really, religion. And Christianity is not a religion. I think you know the difference. Y'all come on in. Y'all know the difference between religion and Christianity. Yeah, religion is trying to gain either acceptance or approbation from God based on your works, and that's what the earth is full of. So pluralism is saying all religions are the same. They have the same moral value, same potential for achieving salvation. Now, I'm going to show you in a little while. Well, we have the, in just a moment, I'm going to show you how this links in with these other things that we have already studied. Postmodernism is the belief that there are no absolutes and is 
very prevalent today. It goes hand in hand with pluralism and both are quickly becoming the norm rather than the exception. Anytime you say something in a dogmatic way, especially if it has something to do with morality or spirituality, chances are you're going to be challenged because you've made an absolute statement. And people, for the most part these days, they don't like absolute statements because to them everything is relative. You can't know anything for sure. That's postmodernism, and it fits very nicely with pluralism. Then we have the ecumenical movement. It's overtaken much, if not most, of Christendom. It's the idea that unity is more important than Scripture. And you can see how that fits in well also with pluralism and postmodernism. Anyone that stands firm for Bible doctrine, for the Word of God, is a troublemaker. They're not loving. They cause divisions. And in a lot of places, they're not welcome. You'll see a lot of this when I remember... After 9-11, they had these groups come together and they were uh, every sort of belief you could think of. They had, um, they had Catholic priests. They had mullahs from Islam. They had uh, Protestant ministers. And they had... Uh, I don't know, did I say Catholic priests? They had Catholic priests and they had um, people there who were involved in um, shamanism. They had sheiks, Sikhs, I should say. Um, everything you, everything from um, a totem pole worship, worshiper to a witch doctor. Every, all, they were all up on the stage and they were in an ecumenical movement. Oh, let's pray to God. Well, what God? And so we have problems with that. Then you have the emerging church movement. This is spread like wildfire throughout the country. It transformed the gospel into a subjective experience based on a person's feelings. Christ came into the world not to save sinners from eternal hell, but to meet their felt needs and co-op with them to make life better. That's essentially the clarion call of the of the emerging church movement. They use Madison Avenue techniques in order to grow churches, and they do grow them. They, if you want to grow a church, you can sure do it by adopting these methods. Of course, the Holy Spirit is not in it. It's using just techniques that it will grow a business and it will grow your church. I just saw, I, let, I went past something, didn't I? I this, this part here was a quote, George Barna. When we're talking about postmodernism, George Barna's 1993 survey of beliefs of Americans, approximately titled, excuse me, appropriately titled "Absolute Confusion," that was the name of he gave the survey, found that nearly two out of three persons believe that all religions teach basically the same thing, and no one is superior to the others. So, they all basically teach the same thing. Well, if that's the case, why do religion or religious people get so uptight when you say that uh, Jesus Christ is the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me? When Christ said that, if all religions are basically the same, why do they start vibrating? The reason is because they are not the same. Point number five on our outline here that we're reviewing. Why Christians don't evangelize. Actually, there's three main reasons. Fear, pride, and ignorance. Or you could say fear, arrogance, and ignorance. People are afraid. Mainly what they're afraid of is being rejected. Nobody likes to be rejected. So don't give the gospel. You won't be rejected. Of course, you have another side of that coin is a problem that Every believer is commanded to give the gospel and evangelize. So they have fear and they have pride. They have arrogance. 
Sometimes arrogance comes in the form of a sense of superiority that people have, sometimes just by being identified with a group. It may be a Catholic, it might be a Baptist, it might be a Lutheran. Uh, They feel very comfortable, maybe even superior, as long as they don't go out into the world and talk to people about Jesus Christ. Then what happens is they get assailed. Not Maybe not physically, but they get tested to see what they really know about Jesus Christ and the Word of God. And it brings them down. Their air of superiority falls flat. This happens a lot of time when a Jehovah Witness comes knocking on the door. Jehovah Witness are trained, and they're well trained, to take a mediocre believer and make him just, just tie him in knots, usually by asking questions. And their next thing that we have on, the, on there for the reason for not evangelizing is ignorance. You know how many believers that go to church and you would say they're active in going to church. They never miss. And about the only thing they know about the gospel is John 3.16. Outside of that, they really have nothing to say. And that's unfortunate, but that is the way it is. That's one reason I'm giving the scriptures to memorize on our bulletin. We've given, I think it was four so so far. If you don't memorize at least the scriptures that I'm putting on the bulletin, first of all, you're not ready to witness to people. And you must not care much about witnessing because you can't witness if you don't have at least this minimum amount of scripture in your soul that you can do spiritual combat with. I'm, I'm even going to say it. I ought to be saying this on Sunday. I'm preaching to the choir right now. But if you don't know those verses and don't learn those verses, you have an opportunity to learn one verse a month. If you don't do that, shame on you. Because we cannot do spiritual combat and be ignorant of the most basic, fundamental, primary scriptures that refute the idea that we have to work for our salvation. And again, I probably ought to apologize. I'm preaching to the choir, I know. But, and I don't know. Maybe you're learning them. But if you're not learning them, I hope I'm making you feel bad about it. I'm doing my best. Even so, all believers are responsible for witnessing to unbelievers. Anybody know a verse that comes to mind? I don't have it here. Anybody know one verse that would tell us that we're responsible to witness to unbelievers. We've gone over it. It's, I'll tell you right now, it's going to be one of, my, one of our memory verses, but it's not here yet. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. For, <laughs> for, for God is in Christ, and He was... What? Reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Now, that's, that's enough. If you can remember that part, you're doing good. But the rest of it, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. The word of reconciliation is the gospel. He is reaching unbelievers through us. And I don't think he takes too kindly to people who are so spiritually lazy that they won't memorize a few verses and have them at the ready when they have an opportunity to evangelize. The next point we have is gospel misconceptions. And that's a major one because there's a, there are a lot of them. The first one we looked at is universalism. Universalism is the belief that everyone will be, sa- uh, everyone will be saved eventually. There's a lot of people that buy into that. It's gives comfort to them. A lot of people don't believe in hell these days. It's really kind of childish. It's, it's a way of being or dodging accountability. If there's no hell, you don't have any sweat. Now under this we have a couple of sub-points. A, it is worldwide and spreading this universalism. And B, it elevates God's 
attribute of love above all his other attributes. Remember that? People are comforted by the idea that God is love. Surely he would not throw one of his creatures into hell, into the lake of fire. Well, we talked about that. Elevating any of his attributes above any of the other ones will go into, make, make you get into a tailspin when it comes to theology. They all have to harmonize. God is love, but he's also just. He's also righteous. And then we looked at some biblical arguments for universalism. The first one is the, the saving desire of God. It goes like this. Since God desires all mankind to be saved, they all will eventually be saved. That's just uh, some flawed logic there. God is all-powerful. Whatever he desires, he, he gets. Well, what are they missing? What are the three wills of God? You have the directive will. These are the imperative moods, what we should do. We have the permissive will. We're not robots. God didn't pre-program us. We can choose whether we are going to obey or disobey. And when we disobey, then we might come under his overwhelming rule or overruling rule. And those are the three types of God's will. So what these people are ignoring is volition. The second argument that a universalist cling to is the saving provision of God. They say since Christ died on the cross for all mankind all mankind will be saved. Well, I've heard people make an argument. I've heard people in Reformed theology. When I use Reformed theology, do you all know who I'm talking about? I'm talking about Calvinists. Calvinist theology, Calvinistic churches are known as Reformed churches. Do you know why they're called Reformed? They're talking about the Reformation. And when... Um, Luther came out with his uh, thesis, tacked it on the Wittenberg church's door. He recognized that you're saved by grace through faith. And it's not by works. And you had the Catholic church attack him and others and saying, okay, you're saying it simply by faith. Look at these believers over here. They're worse than unbelievers. They would embarrass hell. And so rather than respond to that biblically, they came up with uh, something that got them out of the, took the pressure off. And they would say, oh, well, these people aren't really saved. Well, why weren't they saved? Because they're not elect. And that's where you Calvinism kind of blossomed from there. So... That's, again, what, uh, an argument of the Reformed theologists, or theologians, I should say. They say if unlimited atonement is correct, if Christ died for the sins of the entire world, then the entire world and everyone would be saved. What's missing? The same thing was missing in point A. Volition and the permissive will of God. Point C in this argument is... The saving promise of God goes like this. God will be glorified and eventually bring all things back to a perfect state. But giving eternal life to those who reject the gospel is counter to that plan. Those who die rejecting Jesus Christ are going to spend eternity in the lake of fire. Nothing's going to change that. We are going to live someday in a perfect environment. It will be sin-free. There will be no more sin and no more death. That will come to pass. But that does not necessitate that unbelievers are going to get a second chance after they die. In fact, that's not going to happen. And that's what universalists claim. Then point number D, the last point here, or next to the last point. Some universalists mistakenly use 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19 to argue that unbelievers have another chance after death to accept the gospel. That has to do with that verse, 1 Peter 3.19. Christ made a proclamation uh, to the spirits now in prison. And we went over that 
and that doesn't have anything to do with humans that have died in unbelief. This is referring to fallen angels who went outside the bounds of the rules of engagement in the angelic conflict. They procreated with women and God has put them in prison. Jesus Christ went there after the cross to let them know that he won the strategic victory and their, their doom is sealed. Then we have scriptures that refute universalism. Uh, Daniel 12.2, Matthew 25.46, Mark 9.43-44, Luke 16.22-24. By the way, what is Luke 16.22-24 about? And don't say it. Just raise your hand if you know. Two, three, four, five. Some of you are... <laughs> Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus and the rich man. Remember. Remember that. It gives us so much information about the interim state. Uh, tells us a lot about where unbelievers go into a place called torments and all about that. That's in Luke 16, 22 through 24. John 5, 28 through 29. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6. And 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 through 9. Revelation 14, 9 through 10. Revelation 20, 11. And that's a short list. But uh, if you ever want to refer to this, that's some of the verses that refute it. Then we went into uh, faith plus works. This is going to take a while, this faith plus work uh, misapplication of the gospel. This was all right, but it's scattered all over the place now because I changed the size of it. That's why it's all over the place. Uh, point number one, most people on this planet do not believe in Jesus Christ and are in some religious system working for salvation, whatever they conceive it to be. You ha we have to realize most of the planet, most of the population, reject Jesus Christ right out. They don't believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God nor that He came to earth to take care of the sin problem. They just don't do it. Then, point number two, however, the majority of the people that we have contact with profess faith in Jesus Christ and believe that salvation comes through faith in Christ plus works. Most of the people that you will come in contact with fit that description. Here's what we must answer. Is salvation by faith? Is it by works? Or is it by faith plus works? That's the big question. That's what we're dealing with. Point number four, we read a Berean call excerpt. One of the quotes in that was, Eternal life is a gift, but requirements must be met as keeping the commandments. So you can get the gift, but there's a requirement that you must uh, you must qualify before you have this gift, and that is you have to keep the commandments. Now, this, I re responded that briefly. A, definition of a gift. A gift is something given without string, with no strings attached. You can't work for a gift. If you do, it's no longer a gift. Every, any, just about anybody can understand that. Accepting it is something else. Scriptural refutation of this is Romans chapter 4, verse 4 through 6. By the way, Romans 4, 5 is one of our memory verses. Galatians 2, 16. Three times in that one verse, it says it's not of works, but faith in Christ. Then we have Romans 3, 28, Galatians 5, 4, and Philippians 3, 9. No one is justified before God by keeping the law. Romans 8, 3. In Acts 13, 38, those who try to keep the law to be saved are under a curse. Remember the curse? Deuteronomy 27, verse 26, Galatians 3, 10, Romans 3, 19 and 20, Galatians 3, 24 through 25, and James 2, 10. Do you remember what James 2, 10 says? You don't have to quote it, but do you know what it is? Do you know where to go to find this? It's an important verse. If you sin... If you break the law even in one way, if you break the law one time, you're guilty of it all. So people who think, well, I'm better than the next person, or I'm pretty good at keeping the law, 
According to the Bible, you sin one time against the law and the judgment is the lake of fire. Period. And I don't think any rational person is going to try to argue that they keep the entire law. 630 commandments when they can't even keep 10, nor do they even know what the 10 are. So put a well, you don't you, you don't have this yet, but when you get it, put a little asterisk by James 2:10. Point E, contrary to what the Quran states, good deeds do not remove sins, nor will there be a judgment to weigh good deeds against sins to determine salvation. And then we have Shura 11:1:14 and Shura 7:8 through 9. Uh, the Brian Call excerpt also said. This grace is not given to anyone who does not keep our Lord's commandments. Do you see the outright blatant fallacy? There's a condition for grace, and by the definition of grace, there is no condition. That's the point. Well, that's all I have. I have more than that, but that's all I have here. That's just a quick review of where we've been so far. And uh, I hope that will be edifying to you as we continue. And we're going to start tonight on new ground. Here are the notes. Under getting, this is lesson number six. And we're going to start by living bread and living water. This is such a great area. You'll see in a moment why I'm calling this section Living Bread and Living Water. And we're going to go to a verse that I have to confess always kind of bothered me. I didn't completely understand it. And I spent two days studying this, deciphering it, exegeting it, getting into the Greek and everything else. And finally, I can teach it to you. Hopefully, you'll have a, a thoroughgoing understanding of it so you'll be able to appreciate the grace of God. After feeding the 5,000 people, five loaves and two fish, Jesus departed from them, and the next day they found him and knew they <coughs> excuse me, and he knew that they sought him to get another free meal, but not for eternal salvation. So he told them, and I want you to turn to John chapter 6 verse 27. You might want to make some notations in your Bible. I'm I'm setting this up because you all heard of the five loaves and two fishes, usually is the way it's said, the two fishes, and how it fed 5,000 people and they had uh, all these baskets left over and so forth. Well, after that happened, that was on the southern side of the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus departed and went over to Capernaum, which is on the uh, east side, uh, no, let's say west side of the Sea of Galilee, and they were looking for him, and they finally, they found him, and when they found him, uh, what I'm setting this up is he knew, and he's going to explain to them, you're not after the bread that is going to lead to eternal life. You're after a free meal. And I, this, by the way, I've told you before, if we ever want to grow this church just for the sake of growing the church, all we have to do is start offering free food and we'll have them coming out our ears. We'll be, we'll be building another wing in no time. So this isn't something that's remote that just happened back in those days. And, of course, it was worse then. They couldn't stop at a McDonald's or uh, uh, with Kentucky Fried Chicken or anything like that. I mean, just when you were out in the country, it wasn't that easy to have a meal. You had to bring it with you or kill something, cook it, whatever. It wasn't an easy deal. So in John chapter 6, verse 27, he says, Do not work for the food which perishes. Do not work for the food that perishes. What verse does that remind you of? Do not work. Romans 4, 5. Y'all remember it? To the one who does not work, 
but believe. See, already, you, when you get these verses down and you see verses like this, you start making correlations. Aha! Uh-huh. It's saying it again here. Christ is saying it only a different way. Paul said, To the one who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Very important verse. And so here we have Christ saying, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the, and I put in here in brackets, spiritual food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father, God, has set his seal. I have some explanatory notes. Jesus was explaining that physical food is short-lived, but spiritual food leads to eternal life. He was trying to help them understand that it was foolish to expend their energy following him around to get a meal that only lasts a few hours. That's what he was trying to get across when he said that. It's much better to use their energy to obtain the food that would sustain them for all eternity. He is the Son of Man who would give them the gospel, which is the spiritual food, that would point to himself as a food that endures to eternal life. What was the food that they needed in order to have eternal life? Well, you can say here, the food, which I put in brackets, is spiritual food, specifically the gospel, that spiritual food was pointing to the real food the real bread of heaven, which was Jesus Christ. He's going to make a play on words here in a moment, but uh, I want you to understand that. So he is the Son of Man who would give them the gospel, the spiritual food that points to himself as the food that endures to eternal life. He is the bread of life, according to John 6, 35, and the living bread that came down from heaven in John 6, 51, which we have the verse here. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, and I, I just, I, I can't say it because I wasn't there, but I would bet a dollar to a donut or even more than that when he said, if anyone eats this bread, that he was going like this. If anybody eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for him, uh, for the life of the world, is my flesh. Jesus Christ had to have a human body. Why did Jesus Christ have to have a human body? Right. Deity cannot die. And so he had to come, and as the Bible says, come in the likeness of sinful flesh. He had a body, but it wasn't like everybody else's body. He had no sin nature because he was virgin born. And so he's telling them, He's given it as straight as you can get it that I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread. What is eating the bread? It's really an idiom. What is it referring to? Yeah, believing in Christ. We'll see that more in a moment. This is very similar to Jesus talking with the woman at the well. She was only interested in getting the water from the well rather than receiving living water from Jesus. So turn to John 4 verse 10. We see a similar situation. These people were only interested in a free meal, a free meal, and the woman at the well was only interested in getting what? Water. So I kind of cut in right in the middle of it here in verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and by the way, what's the gift of God? Eternal life. And in righteousness. If you, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Well, I bet her ears perked up on that one. And she said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? See, so she, she's not getting it yet, who he is. But she is interested in living water. She just doesn't know how he's going to come up with it. Then verses 13 through 15. John 4, 13. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. Just like he was telling the people that came to him in John 6, Anyone who eats of this food 
is going to be hungry again. It's not going to be long. Verse 14, But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, drinking of the water here means accepting the gospel, just like eating the real bread would be analogous to believing the gospel. But whoever, that means anyone who drinks of this water that I will give him, that means accepts the gospel, shall never thirst, but the water that I give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me, notice not Lord, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. See, she still didn't get it. She wants this living water so she won't be thirsty. She thought it meant I won't literally be thirsty anymore. I won't have to come here and draw this water. This is, I think, interesting. Food and water are necessary to live. But living food and living water, Jesus Christ, is necessary to live eternally. That's the point he's trying to get across. We have to have food. We have to have water to live physically. How fast is this life over? Muy pronto. Muy rapido. Machnil, however you want to say it. It doesn't last long. It's quick and it's over. And we need to be interested in the living water that's necessary to live eternally. Now, John 6.28 is where we really have to get into it. This is the meat of, the, of this part right here in John 6.28. He says, Therefore they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Okay, these unbelievers understood that something was required of them to acquire the food that endures to eternal life, but they thought they had to work to get it. This is a, a quote I have from the Grace Evangelical Society Journal, Volume 12, and it says, Here the Jews were exposing their pharisaical theology and the baggage that they had from the Pharisees made up of the minutia of laws and the extrapolations of laws and the thousands upon thousands of man-made interpretations. So this is what they thought. This is how the Jews thought because they were trying to be saved by keeping the law. So they would naturally say, Okay, uh, therefore, what shall we do to work the works of God? We have to do something. We're ready to work. What is it? And then we have another quote from uh, the Journal of Grace Evangelical Society, volume number 2. And he says this, If ever there was an opportunity for our Lord to stress the necessity for keeping the law, or part of the law, or availing oneself of the grace said to come through baptism, or holy communion, etc., or total submission to His Lordship, or character building, or 10 or 15 other faith plus systems that Christendom has devised, this was it. You see what he's saying here? They're begging the question here. If there was even one infinitesimal little bitty statute that was required, this is where he would give it. That's what he's saying. So we want to listen very carefully to how he answered them. John 6:29 Then Jesus answered and said to them This is the work Notice here in verse 28 underline it in your bible so that we may work the works plural Make sure you got that that's plural that's what they they say okay we want this living water we're ready to work for it what are the works of God that we must do But he answered, Jesus answered them, this is the work, underline that, singular, singular work. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now I'll tell you the reason why this verse used to bother me because what he's telling them, it sounds like he's saying, well, believing is a work. I mean, you can get that if you take things out of context. You don't understand What's at stake here? So let's look at it. I put some 
words in here to show the meaning of what he was saying. First of all, when he says this, he's talking about this salvation. This salvation is the work, singular, of God. They want to work works. He's saying, no, this salvation is the work, singular, of God. You don't have anything to do with it. You can't do anything. It's God's singular work, not all of your works, that's going to gain you this salvation. So he says this, in brackets, salvation is the work, singular, of God. And when he says of God, he's saying it's not of man. This is the work of God, singular work of God, not of you. So that you can believe in him, Jesus Christ. See, they can't believe in Jesus Christ apart from the work that God has done. Not the works that they do. So you can believe in Him, Jesus Christ, whom He, God the Father, has sent so that you can be saved. That's the gist. That's what He's saying. And I'm going to amplify this. But He's answering them. And when you put it in the full context of the, la- the first, uh, uh, excuse me, the last three verses that precede it, it puts it in context what he's saying. Now I have a few um, quotes for this also, but look at this. Jesus was telling them that they were wrong to think eternal life could be attained by man's good works, but can only be attained by God's work. Christ's work on the cross and nothing else provides eternal life for man and it is acquired by believing on Him, that is, Jesus Christ, whom the Father has sent. That's what He's telling them. Now here's a quote that I thought was pretty good. This is from the uh, Journal of Grace Evangelical Society, Volume 9. And he says the following. The expression, good work, singular, is used rhetorically to refer to believing the gospel. The Jews thought that they had to do good works, plural, to obtain everlasting life. Jesus said the work singular they needed to do was to believe him. Jesus was not talking about good works in the Pauline sense. He was talking about obeying God's command to believe in his son. The Pauline sense is the idea that people have to work in order to gain salvation, and that's not the way that God, I mean, that Christ used it here. It's a rhetorical reference in order for them to understand all it is is obeying the command to believe in His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, He he follows it. uh, Here's more of it here. Now, notice that Jesus uses the same word they started with, work but he puts it in the singular. He says, this is the work of God. You want to talk about works? That's how you're conditioned, you know, from the, from the Pharisees. Jesus says, this is the work with a play on words. That is that, uh, what is that work? The work is to believe, but of course, believing isn't a work at all. Are you getting this? He turned it around on them with a play on words. In other words, this is what God requires of you, not works, but one thing, and that is to believe. Are you all getting that now? They want to know what work can we work, uh, can we do to work the works of God. And they're talking about having what? Living bread. The bread that will, or the food that will uh, give them eternal life. And Christ says, I'm the bread. If you just read the whole John 6 chapter in there, it even becomes more relevant. It was in John 51, which is, I don't know, several verses down from this one, this one when he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. And then in the same area, he's going to say, if you don't eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, then you don't have anything to do with me. You don't ha- you're not going to have eternal life. And what did they do then? They were freaking out. They looked at him... Is he telling us to be cannibals? Do we have to take a bite out of his arm? Uh, they were so shallow-minded because they were spiritually dead. They couldn't even think in, with regards to spiritual matters. They were a lot like Nicodemus when Christ said, you must be born again. He says, you mean I've got to crawl back up in my mother's womb? He had, he, he had no 
spiritual vocabulary. He didn't know anything spiritually. And they were the same way. So that's a good verse. I'm, I'm ending up this portion of it with that verse. Here it is again. This salvation is the work, singular, of God, not of man, so that you can believe in Him, Jesus Christ, whom He, God the Father, has sent, so that you can be saved. I just have here to be saved, but it means sent that mankind can be saved. The work of God is Jesus Christ going to the cross. And that made it possible for people to believe in Him and have eternal life. That's the redemption solution. Right. It's the work of God. The work is providing salvation. The work of God is referring to God doing what was necessary to provide salvation for us. And we just normally we just point to the cross, but it took a lot more than that, didn't it? First of all, it, it took the fact that Jesus Christ, member of the Godhead, had become humanity. And that's no small feat. He had to be born of a virgin. He had to remain sinless all the way up to the point of the cross. Even during the cross, everything he said was fulfilling prophecy. Uh, the multitude and, the, and the, the things that God did, the work that He did is astonishing. But it's, it's, look at it. It's not all those works put together. It's just talking about the work, period, the provision. God made it possible for us to be saved. And it was from His own initiative, not from ours. God demonstrated His love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died as a substitute for us. That's the work that God did so that you can believe in Him. He did the work. Now we can, now we can accept it. Now we can have that, that water, that living water, because we simply have faith in Christ. That's what that's talking about. Okay, uh, I'm going to have to stop. Here, you see what we're going to see next time? Can you see what I'm saying here? Huh? Oh, boy. Here we go. The reason I'm using that as an example because it's such a great example for those who believe. If you ask a Catholic, do you believe in Jesus Christ? What's he going to say? I've never asked anyone that question, never knew of any of them who would not say, oh, Certainly, I believe in Jesus Christ. And I'm going to give you a list of all the things that they believe in that we believe in. And this hopefully will stick in your memory that whenever you ask someone, do you believe in Jesus Christ, and they say yes, and you say hallelujah, you turn around and walk off, shame on you. Because most of the people that you will come in contact with will say that they believe in Jesus Christ, and most of them are unregenerate. They're not saved. If you truly care about them and you have the information and you have the verses at the ready, it can make a difference between life in eternal bliss or life in eternal torment for them. But we'll get into that next time. Let's close. Father, thank you for this time. You've given us the fellowship in your word. We're so thankful that you did it all. It is finished. And now it's just a matter of accepting it through believing in Jesus Christ, that non-meritorious grace. The best news that there ever has been or ever will be. We pray that you will prepare us so that we will be eager to look for opportunities to tell others the good news. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.